Good morning. Um, those who haven't met me, I'm, I've been coming here for about a year to Wren um, with my family. I'm usually sat in the back because um, my kids are very loud. Um, and we're usually a little late as well, which we're working on. Um, so, um, yeah, my name is Vicky. I, I'm British. I like to just get that out of the way before I start, because then you're not sitting through the whole message wondering what my accent is. It's British. It's not Australian. <laughs> um, so now you know and you can relax. Um, yeah, I, so I'm really honoured to be speaking to you um, for the first message of 2024. Um, it's a huge honour. And um, I really um, hope that I'm going to be able to do justice. I tried to pick a, a New Year-worthy um, theme, um, pursuing Jesus in 2024 and what that might look like for us. Because um, this is a time of setting New Year's resolutions, right? Um, it's a time where we often refocus or focus on things that we want to do in the new year to get ourselves back on track, the things we want to leave behind, the things we want to bring into the new year, the new things that we want to start. Um, and I've noticed also that a lot of people are starting to opt out of New Year's resolutions altogether. That's a real trend this year of, um, of not setting um, New Year's resolutions, probably with the recognition that they often like fizzle out before the end of January. Um, I was reading, um, I was reading, um, I get these morning newsletters from the New York Times and I was reading, um, somebody was talking about how they just didn't like setting themselves up for failure. So out with the New Year's resolutions. Um, I was also reading, somebody had tweeted, I don't need a New Year's resolution. It's the year's turn to do better. Yeah. And I think we can, we, we resonate with that too. And I've also noticed that it's becoming common now to um, set a, a word of intention or a sort of phrase of intention for the new year instead of a resolution, which I kind of like the idea of. Um, and I was thinking what would my word of intention be based on this message today? And I think it would be pursue um, or possibly the phrase don't miss out. So that's a little teaser for where we're headed. Um, and I want to look um, at pursuing Jesus in 2024 through a very specific Bible study, um, to the Bible story today, um, which is in Matthew 2. If you brought a Bible, you can turn to the beginning of Matthew 2. Um, and I'm going to read through it, and then I'm going to walk us through a little bit more through the story. Um, so it's a little controversial because this is the story of the visit of the wise men, if you've turned to it, um, which is probably something that you have read over the last month or so or heard. Um, so why am I taking you back to the Christmas story um, well, if I really wanted to justify myself, I'd probably say this isn't really a Christmas story because it's commonly believed that the visit of the wise men occurred after the birth of Jesus, probably within the first two years of Jesus's life. It's probably dated between when he was about six to 18 months old. And in fact, in some church traditions, they don't celebrate the, the visit of the wise men until January 6th, which is known as the Feast of the Epiphany um, in some traditions um, and marks the end of the 12 days of Christmas. You know that song on the first day of Christmas? <laughs> 
and I, I was always like, what are these 12 days of Christmas? Like, it's not Advent. So, but that's the period after Christmas, which culminates in the visit of the wise men. So, in fact, January 6th was yesterday, and we're right on time. So that's my little justification. But I also think it's a deeply fascinating story. It's also at times a terrifying story. There's much more going on in it than at first glance. There's astrology, power struggles, genocide, race issues, politics, strangers, paranoia. And I think when it gets lumped with the Christmas story, um, we often skim over it and we don't really get to see those details. Um, And so this morning, it's an opportunity for us to pause, to hit the pause button, to go back a little. Let's re-immerse ourselves in this story. Now the Christmas season is over in the busyness and the hectic schedules. Um, And let's just re-immerse ourselves in this story and try and come to it with fresh ears and eyes um, this morning. And in particular, I really want us to focus on the characters in this story and move beyond those Christmas pageant images of the cute kids in the crowns and dressed as wise men. And I really want us to understand who these people are and and what's going on. So I'll read through it now. It's Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So before we get into unpacking this, it's important to note that this is the only gospel of the four gospels um, where this story is mentioned. And Matthew is, in particular, is very concerned with um, Jewish prophetic scripture and showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. 
So if you read through the book of Matthew, you'll see lots of prophecies quoted because he probably had a Jewish audience in mind and he was probably trying to demonstrate beyond a doubt that Jesus was the fulfillment of this this prophecy, that he really was um, the Messiah. So for me, that's one of the most satisfying parts of the Bible, um, that you can read prophecy from hundreds and hundreds of years ago and then you can read how accurately Jesus fulfilled that. Um, it's a really sati- for me, it's a really satisfying part of reading scripture. And in chapter two, this book takes a surprising turn because it tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, as per prophecy, the wise men came from the east. So these were not your typical God-fearing Jews who had a detailed knowledge of prophetic scripture. They may possibly have been a remnant um, of Jewish people who had been exiled to the East. We know that Jewish people were exiled to the East. But they certainly don't identify themselves as such. The scripture doesn't say that. Um, And they don't claim to be looking for a king who fulfills the scripture. What they say is that they are looking for a king of the Jews based on, we all know the answer, right? A star. And they saw this star when it rose, and on the basis of that star, they've come to worship him. That's in verse two. And these people are positioned as strangers and as outsiders to the Jewish people. We know that they're called, in the Greek text, they're called magi or magoi, and that that means wise men. And the fact that they are called wise men and that they have been studying stars suggests that they are astrologers. And in Eastern states at that time, astrologers would act as advisors to kings. Um, They would make an astronomical observation and then they would use an interpretation to advise the king. They probably also dabbled in things like magic books, dream interpretations, um, a little bit like modern day horoscopes. Um, And this was a very profitable, wealthy occupation um, because these wise men from the East have been able to fund a very long journey to get there and they brought expensive gifts with them and they're admitted into this audience with King Herod who probably wouldn't have seen just anybody. So we know that they're very wealthy, people of influence, but they're definitely strangers and they're strangers from a strange land. And what's even stranger is that these People are not following a star of a newly crowned, fully grown adult king. They claim that the star rose when the king was born. And that's really peculiar when you think about it, because how many infants do you know who are born king? Usually, you know, people have a period where they're a prince before they become a king, but this baby has been born king. So who are these people who have traveled so far A, for a baby who won't even know that they're there. And more than that, for a baby who's not even their king. Because on the face of it, this is a prophecy or a star that's not even for them. And at the time, the Jewish people didn't have the best reputation. It's really strange that they're looking for the king of the Jews. Because the Jewish people were... Um, at worst despised because they had strange customs and beliefs and they were kind of this troublesome race. And at best, they were kind of looked down on because they were so frequently conquered and driven into exile. Um, You know, they just... 
They just didn't have good status in those days. So it's remarkable that these men were looking for an infant king, but also a king of a, of a low and despised race like the Jews at that time. So they come into the courts of, um, of the king, of King Herod, the reigning king, Herod, um, which is probably, I think, the probably is probably a good safe bet, right? Looking for a king, go to the courts of the king, or at the very least, go to Jerusalem and hope that the Jewish people can tell you where their Messiah is. Um, but then the story in verse three, it gets even weirder because when Herod hears it, who is the Jewish reigning Jewish king, he's troubled and all Jerusalem are troubled with him. That's what it says. And so these strangers are in a better position to notice the coming Messiah than the Jewish people who actually seem oblivious. They probably wouldn't have even noticed anything if these men hadn't shown up in the courts. And in fact, in verse four, Herod has to summon the chief priests and the scribes to help him with locating where the Messiah is to be born. He doesn't even know that the prophecy is about the town that's six miles down the road from where he's sitting. So it's a plot twist. The outsiders get it, but the in crowd nearly miss the signs of it altogether and they're anxious, actually anxious and fearful about it. And it's so easy in the Christmas story, you know, we kind of see King Herod as the bad guy. But why does he respond like that? This should have been good news. The prophecy in verse five and six says that in this small town of Bethlehem, just six miles from Jerusalem, this ruler will come who will shepherd the people of Israel. So this lost, wandering, look down on race, who have been conquered and exiled and fragmented, are finally going to get this shepherd ruler to reunite them, this shepherd ruler to take care of them. And they've been waiting for him for hundreds of years. So it should have been good news. And I don't think the wise men would have gone to King Herod's court if they didn't think it was good news and they didn't think it was going to be received as such. So... That should surprise us and it should, it should question us why they reacted that way. It should cause us to question why they reacted that way. And I think um, a little backstory on Herod is useful. Herod is actually a historical figure. So we do have some good ideas about his reign. It's thought that he was around 70 years old when the wise men visited him. He may have been a practicing Jew. He definitely consults the scribes and the chief, chief priests, but he's also a vassal or puppet king for the Roman government, um, which means that he did what the Rome told him to do, and in return, he was rewarded um, with status and wealth. And he was probably quite a clever, shrewd politician because he had stayed in favour through successive Roman governments and had accumulated quite a lot of wealth that way. He was also a great ruler and administrator. He was very good at famine relief and his building projects were admired even by his enemies. Even, even the Jews in Jerusalem who feared him had to take their hats off to what he had achieved and he'd rebuilt the temple and other structures. And he lived in a fortress 
or a palace called Herodium, which was his most prominent military centre, and that gave him protection from aggressive tax, tax revolts because he had to inflict heavy taxes to pay um, for everything and to keep Rome happy. So for someone who had enjoyed all the benefits the world had to offer, had lived a very comfortable life, had been very successful in a lot of areas, he seems disproportionately concerned about the birth of a baby king. And it's thought that as he got older, his love of power, and possibly compounded by physical illness, there's some reports that he also suffered physical illness, caused paranoia, and he gained a reputation for cruelty, and became suspicious of those around him, um, particularly his like close associates and his family members, and he actually that actually led him to execute um, some of the people closest to him. So what troubled him possibly wasn't just the competition or the possibility that he might be usurped by this king, but also a concern for his legacy, because he's seventy years old. And this baby's not going to be an adult until he's gone, most likely. Um, so he is concerned not just about what he looks like today, but his memory and the legacy that he's going to leave and who's going to come after him. And he had used the people. He had, you know, taxed them. He'd used them for his own purposes. And he seems threatened and wounded, his pride seems wounded by this idea of this shepherd ruler who's going to take care of them. And I want to suggest that he wanted his name not just to be great in this life, but actually to extend beyond it to become immortal and was concerned that this baby might in some way compromise that. And what's even stranger is that we're told that all Jerusalem are troubled with him as well. That's a really strange detail to include. This writer wants us to know the temperature of the town, of the city, and it's decidedly cold. And my sense is that it's out of fear, that knowing the cruelty and paranoia of Herod, they likely feared the repercussions of the news for themselves and only saw, you know, they foresaw the hardship and the bloodshed that was going to come from Herod's paranoia being, you know, touched. And it just overshadowed the good news for them. They couldn't receive the good news because they were so fearful. So Herod being um, the shrewd planner that he is, summons the wise men and ascertains from them what time the star has appeared. That's where we get one of our most accurate datings for the time of Jesus' birth, being able to link it to Herod's reign. Um, and in verse 8, um, he tells them to go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him, which are lies. The irony, of course, is that we know this is far from what Herod wants to do. And by the end of the chapter, we read that he uses this information to massacre all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding region, which is another detail we tend to skim over in the Christmas story. So the wise men listen, but apparently make no promises, and they head off to Bethlehem. And the star continues to guide to them to the place where Jesus is. And I think having come from Herodium and that lavish palace, it must have been a real contrast to go into that tiny town of Bethlehem 
to see Jesus and his mother in the house where they were, where the star comes to rest. I don't, I don't think it could have been what they were expecting, but there is no hint of disappointment or discouragement. They do exactly what they came to do. They go in to the house, they fall down and they worship him and they are filled with joy. When they see that star come to rest over the place where Jesus is, it says in verse 10 that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I love this. John Piper calls this triple rejoicing because they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. There's not many things in our lives, I don't think, that make us rejoice like that. Maybe the birth of a new baby in our family. Maybe when your team wins the cup, that's a pretty joyful moment. Uh, Maybe when you get that job that you wanted or that promotion. But are there many things that really make us rejoice like that? like they did when they came to that tiny house in that tiny town and they saw a tiny baby and they're invited into this this intimate moment. If you've visited new moms with their babies, it's a very vulnerable, sensitive time and they're invited into this incredibly intimate time. I know Jesus was a little bit older, but it's still, it's a very vulnerable time. And... They give him expensive gifts um, from their most treasured possessions because if you were from the East, you never came to see a person of importance and didn't bring a gift with you. And that's still kind of, we relate to that. It's a tradition that happens still. And actually, even when people see royalty today, they tend to bring a gift with them. And that must have been quite a sight. We tend to think there's three of them because of the three gifts, but it doesn't say there's three of them anywhere. And it probably was a large caravan of people traveling from from the east. So that must have been quite a sight, these people rocking up at this tiny house in this tiny town with like a lot of wealth and splendor. I can't imagine there weren't many people in that town that didn't know that something was going on. Well, it's, it's an amazing story, but what does it have to tell us about our own pursuit of Jesus? because I promised you some New Year's reflections. And maybe the Holy Spirit has been whispering things to you as you've been listening to that story. Hold on to those things, because what God has spoken to you in your own heart, that's really really important. But I'm going to offer you two thoughts and reflections um, from my reading of this. So the first is, I'm struck by the lengths that God goes to pursue us. And the second is, I'm challenged to think how I will pursue him. So I'm going to unpick those two things. So first, I'm struck by the lengths that God goes to pursue us. So apart from the central message of the Christmas story, which is that this is a shepherd baby king who has come down and taken human form to dwell among us, which is quite enough pursuing as it is, I'm also struck by how God goes to powerful lengths to draw us to him, no matter who we are or where we come from. These were astrologers from another land who dabbled in horoscopes and magic. They seem like the most unlikely people. If you read the Old Testament and the heroes in the Old Testament and David and Abraham, these people seem like the most unlikely people to have an audience with the king with this new king. And 
he reaches them and uses something to reach them that is actually the thing that makes them the most unlikely to be pursued, which is the star. He gives the astrologers a star and it leads them to him. So there are a few um, plausible theories about the star, if you like the backstory. It could have been a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. We know that happened at that time, and that would have suggested to people in eastern states this idea of a wise man or a king in the West in the Westland. It could have been a supernova or meteor because the Greeks suggest that the star came to rest exactly where Jesus was, that it's, the Greek says it stood over it. It could have been a supernatural event. It really, it doesn't matter. Whatever it was, it made them sit up and pay attention. It made them leave their comfortable lifestyles in the East, travel thousands of miles to come and visit a baby and his mother. So God met those wise men before they had even stepped a foot out on that journey. Before they had, even, they had come into that place where Jesus was, he had met them in that star. God can use anything, anything. And what's more, these were not lowly shepherds who, who we read about first visited infant Jesus who had the lowest jobs of the day. These were people of wealth, status, importance. They had comfortable employment. They had means to travel. They had treasures. What did they need with a saviour? It reminds me that there is no one who is not in need of God or who God is not willing to pursue. And that feast of epiphany that I mentioned at the beginning, epiphany means the revelation of God. This event is celebrated because it signals that God reveals himself not just to the Jewish people, but to the entire world. The saviour is not just the the saviour of the people of Israel, but everyone. And how often do we rule ourselves out of God's sphere of influence? How often do we use those excuses? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I've dabbled in things. God knows I've dabbled in things that I shouldn't have done. That maybe you've been involved in other spiritual practices. Maybe you've lived your life and there's been elements of your lifestyle that you know God would not approve of. We rule ourselves out using those things. Or we exclude ourselves because we don't have a good knowledge of the Bible. We don't have that person's knowledge of Scripture. We're not like that person who grew up in the church and knows the Bible. They didn't know prophetic Scripture. They had a star in the sky. That's what they had. And perhaps we feel that we're very successful in life. And, you know, we, don't, we have, you know, what we need. And what more can we get from God? What more can he give us? They didn't let any of those excuses hold them back. God pursues us all. And he wants to bring all of us into that quiet intimacy that they experienced that day when they went in to see Jesus and his mother. Do we need this year to recognise and accept his pursuit of us? Do we need to lay down the ideas that we're not good enough? or somehow we're outside of what 
God is doing in the church. You come into church and feel sometimes that you're on the outside. This is for everyone else, but it's not for me. Do we need to lay that down and accept that He is pursuing us? What about those we know? What about those who seem like the most unlikely people in our lives to follow Jesus? Those people we really find it hard to imagine ever stepping foot in a church or ever hearing us out on this. What if God met them through their own medium? What would that look like? Can we be praying this year for God to meet people in their own medium? We were praying about this this morning right before the service. This came up in the prayer. So I believe that this is something for this church this year. What does it look like in our communities and in our neighbourhoods for God to reach people in their own medium? Is that art? Is it books? Is it, you know, what, what is it? Let's be asking that question. And secondly, how will we choose to pursue him? Because this requires a response or an action... And I'm struck by the different responses and outcomes for the people in this account and just how easy it is to miss out on the good news of Jesus. So one thing that in this story that no one seems to doubt is that this baby could be the Messiah. There's no one who turns around and says, oh no, forget it. Like even Herod refers to the baby as the Christ and he wants to know where it is. And Christ in the Greek means anointed, so it's the equivalent of Messiah. And the chief priests, you know, they recognize, they quote the, the prophecy, and the wise men call him the king of the Jews. So there's this underlying recognition of who this baby is or could be, but it provokes vastly different responses to the news and different results. And it really poses the question what will our own pursuit look like? So Herod reacts with anxiety and paranoia. It eventually turns to anger and violence. His main goal is to protect what he already has. And he's so desperate to preserve his own agenda, he's willing to do the unthinkable. And he got what he wanted. He is immortalised in history, but for all the wrong reasons. And I think it's easy to make him the villain But the selfishness of his actions, his desire to be admired or even feared, and to leave some kind of a legacy, to be in control of his own destiny, is uncomfortably relatable. Mm, Because like Herod, we can spend our lives trying to be successful and secure. We can build our own little palaces, whether that's comfortable homes or secure jobs, things that that establish our independence and protect us from any kind of vulnerability. And we want our names to be recognised and respected even after we've gone. We want people to, we want to leave a legacy in our field of work. We want people to remember us. We want our families um, to remember us. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. I think it's a normal human desire. But the risk is, is that if we pursue it, uh, if we pursue our own goals too, too hard, we may pursue them to the point where there's no room for an unanticipated journey or a detour to go where Jesus is. We can be so focused on our, on our own track. 
But there's other people who miss out on this news. It's not just Herod. The chief priests and the scribes are indifferent, seem indifferent to this news. They, they do a nice Bible study. They come, they can tell you where the Messiah is to be born. They could probably tell you a lot of things from Scripture, but it does them no good. It is just information. It doesn't spur them on to actions, and they never actually go and see the Christ child. They could have had an audience with the King of Kings. They could have gone with them, and they miss it. These are people who had studied it for hundreds of years. This is what they were supposed to be longing for, and they miss it. Friends, it is never enough simply to read our Bibles. It has to result in action. And even worse is that their passivity, their passivity allows Herod to even try to kill the Messiah because presumably they were there when he decreed that massacre and they knew exactly what he was trying to do and they didn't do anything about it. The violence of Herod and the inaction of his courts to do or say anything allows terror and fear to blind the rest of Jerusalem to the good news. The Jewish people are entirely blocked from hearing this message that the wise men bring. All they can see is the bloodshed and the sadness and the tragedy that's going to come out of this. And if you read on, the saddest part is in verse 2, 18, where the words of prophet, the prophet Jeremiah are fulfilled. And it says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The pursuit of other things other than God, power, control, knowledge, status, but also inaction, leads to tragedy and death. It was really hard for me to prepare this and not think of the the tragedy that's happening right in the place of Jesus' birth right now. There's weeping and lamentation. Um, it doesn't, it, regardless of what political side you're on, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, the loss of life, particularly children, thousands of children have died. And my prayer this year is that, apart from peace in that situation, that those with influence and the church wouldn't be silent and that they would give a voice for those who don't have a voice. Because this is supposed to be good news and it's very difficult to receive good news when you're dealing with tragedy and oppression. It has, those have to go, we have to be people who are willing to stand up and bring freedom if we want people to receive the good news. Those two things, I believe, they have to go hand in hand. So the sobering reality is that out of all these people, the wise men are the only ones who encounter Jesus in this story. On the basis of nothing more than a star, they leave their comfortable lifestyles, their place of privilege, they sacrifice their wealth to pay for the journey, they bring their most treasured possessions. They didn't even know exactly where they were headed or how long it would be, or even if they'd actually make it to the destination. But they go and they fall down and they worship a child. That's faith. And as a Christian, it's always my task to ask God, 
what he wants what he wants of me and be willing to go to the hard places and to do the hard things and to deny the serpent who's whispering will it really go better for you if you do what he says because there must have been moments of doubt for them but they denied them and for some of us that's really scary to let go and trust like the wise men did I'm I if this scares you I'm in there with you this is This is the Christian battle, to deny ourselves and to follow him. But the message always comes through scripture, do not be afraid. You know, we're talking about New Year's resolutions and that fear of failure. That fear of failure can hold us back from stepping out into what God has for us. And the wise men grasp something important about that which is they were laying something down to take hold of something much greater and they got triple joy. And that's what we need in 2024. We need triple joy. I believe that's what we're gonna, it's gonna help us to lay things down and to step out. And immediately they, they are propelled into God's bigger plan. They are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Again, God speaks to them through their own medium of dreams. And... This is what enables the Messiah to escape to Egypt. The fact that they don't go back, it buys them time. Jesus escapes the massacre. And those gifts that they gave were very likely used to pay for that flight to Egypt. That would have been expensive. And those expensive gifts, which we always think, um, you know, ha-ha, what does, a God, what does God need with gold? What does a baby need with gold and frankincense and myrrh? They probably paid for that flight to Egypt. Um, and so Herod had sought fulfillment in his own wealth and status and it leaves him anxious, troubled and afraid and the wise men find their fulfillment in the pursuit of a greater leader and it brings them joy, fulfillment and it brings them purpose I want to just share a little story before I close Um, today that I used to, my mom used to read to me growing up um, at Christmas time. And I now read to my own children. There are lots of different versions of it. Um, It's a story called Babushka. Has anyone heard of it? It's a bit obscure. (laughs) Um, So this will be the first time. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to tell you the outline of the story. Um, Babushka means grandmother in Russian. And this story is... um, set, you know, in the cold, snowy, far east. Um, The snow today is perfect setting for it. Um, And Babushka is, so she's this little grandmother who likes to keep things like nice and ordered and tidy. Um, There are various different versions of this story. In the version that I read, I now read my children, she's always dusting and polishing and cleaning and sweeping. When I read this to my son, who's three, um, this year, it was the first time he really grasped the story. And I said, you know, I read this line about dusting and polishing and cleaning and sweeping. He said, Mom, it's like you. (laughs) Uh, So he's cottoned on to the fact that I do like a tidy house. And living with three children is challenging in that respect. Um, There is nothing more challenging than your three-year-old making you the central character in a story. But one night, she gets a knock on the door, and she opens it to discover three kings 
they'd gone with the stereotype of three and the kings. And in some versions, she's really happy to see them. She's very hospitable. In other versions, she's not so happy because she doesn't want a mess. So she doesn't want to invite them in. But she does invite them in. And they tell her that they are following a star um, and that they're on their way to visit the Christ child and that they've brought him gifts and they, sh- they show her the gifts. And they invite her to go with them. It's really interesting because I'm sure they did stop in places and they probably did invite people to go with them and maybe they did pick up some people, I don't know. Um, but Babushka likes this idea um, she, she, but she looks around at the mess and the fact she's had guests and she decides that she can't possibly leave right now. She needs to get her affairs in order. She needs to tidy the house. And so she says, well, maybe I'll follow you, um, but, but you go on ahead and maybe I'll follow you after I've got organized. So they leave the next day and Babushka tidies her house. She looks for gifts to bring the baby And that night she steps out to follow them, but the star is gone. And the story goes that some say that she is still searching for the Christ child and that she visits every cradle and leaves a gift just in case he should be there. And the story kind of goes that she, it's warmed her heart, this search for the Christ child. She's laid down her her need to be ordered and to get everything in order. Um, So it's kind of a happy story, but it's also a really sad story because she never never gets to see the Christ child. Um, That was something that always struck me as a child and reading it now, that she's quite a sad, lonely character um, who is searching for fulfillment that's always just beyond her reach. Perhaps you came in today feeling weighed down by sadness or loneliness or just generally feeling unfulfilled and the new year is a difficult start for you. And I just want to tell you that the good news is is that we don't have to live like this and we don't have to miss out on experiencing the joy of an encounter with Jesus. I'm going to finish. I've given you lots of thoughts. I got excited about this story and I had lots of thoughts about it. Just take one. Just grab onto one and hold on to it. We're going to, in a minute, we're going to close in worship and some response time. And I just invite you to reflect on it. But I will leave you with one reflection, which is if the wise men knocked on your door and said, come with us, what would you say? They were called wise men because of their role advising kings. But what made them wise was their pursuit of this baby king. And you know the cliche, but it's true. Wise men still seek him. If there is anything that you can stake your claim on, even if it's only a star in the sky, I just encourage you to step out and not to miss it, because exceeding joy awaits us. I'm going to invite Kevin to come up and close us. I'm going to finish with a prayer, a very short prayer, that was in my devotionals this week, and which we also came up in our prayer time before church this morning. Holy Spirit, you make all things new. 
awaken my heart to dream new dreams in this new year. I set aside any baggage or worries I have been carrying, releasing my heavy load and finding home in your presence. I breathe in your pursuing love towards me. Amen. Y'all want to stand with me? I want some of that triple joy. <laughs> <laughs>